Today, then, we begin the Why Jesus series of messages, all coming from the Gospel of John. We're going to start today in John chapter 1, where we have this encounter, where the question is asked, what about this Jesus? And in various ways, that question is asked repeatedly through the Gospel of John, as well as the other Gospels. So it's an intriguing question. And we are inviting our neighborhood to come. I don't know if any of you have responded to what you received in the mail, but we mailed something to our neighborhood and said, you can come during this season. And we're examining the question, why Jesus in our worship services and looking at the scriptures about him and why we would choose to follow Jesus. Now, I want you to know I am not a dispassionate fellow traveler. I am very passionate about being a Jesus person because Jesus changed my life early on, and I have been telling people about Jesus for a long, long time, even since I was a boy, sharing my faith with those who did not know Christ. And so I'm not neutral in this regard. I've made my investigation of the historical of Jesus and the Christ of faith, and it's not that I haven't ever broached these big questions. I have both personally and academically. But I've, I am coming to you as somebody who is persuaded that Jesus is the Christ. And here at First Baptist, we are Jesus people, and we call ourselves Jesus people. We talk about Jesus, and we seek to keep Jesus as the focal point and the center of our worship, our teaching, our, our attention, and our mission. He is the one we serve. He is the Savior. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who we are. And as we come to the Gospel of John in this series, I don't want you to think that John's just throwing that out there either as sort of an objective and unbiased uh, recorder of the life of Jesus. No. Excuse me. I'm trying to sneeze here. Thank you. Yes. All right. John has actually persuaded himself that Jesus is the Christ. And he writes at the end of his gospel, which is 22 chapters, he says, Look, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believe in you might have life in his name. So he, along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, but throughout their sojourn with Jesus and the three years that they were with him in ministry, they heard all kinds of questions and comments that people made about Jesus. And so they recorded these because people were asking back then, like they are now, why Jesus? Why him instead of some other? Who is he that we should worship him or call him Lord? Why Jesus? And so we're going to spend some time looking at the Gospel of John, encounters with people that Jesus had, and asking this question. And today, I'm starting out in verse 35 of chapter 1. So in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, you have the prologue, which is magnificent. I hope you'll read it, verses 1 through 18. Then you have a description of the ministry of John the Baptist, and we come to verse 35 in the middle of this interchange with John the Baptist. And verse 35 says, uh, this is chapter 1 of John, the next day John, and that is John the Baptist, 
The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. He's there along the Jordan River. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, which is on the north tip of the Sea of Galilee, a little fishing village there. That's where they were from. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can any good thing come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. I'm intrigued by the phrase, come and see. Did you know it's a famous movie, the movie Come and See? It's a Russian war movie produced in 1985 about the Nazi invasion of Bielorussia and the Russian resistance fighters who met them. Some consider it the greatest war movie ever produced and the first of a genre of its kind. If you look it up, you'll see its fame and its awards. Come and see. When I looked at it, it was interesting to discover that the come and see title of this Russian movie is not from this passage here so much as from the book of Revelation. For the words come and see in this war movie announce the arrival of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6. Conquest, war, famine, and death. And with each of these horsemen, John the Apostle hears the invitation, come. In fact, he hears that invitation at the first part of chapter 4, come, and he is invited up to see these things which must shortly come to pass.
the come and see invitation of Philip to Nathaniel is based upon a context of great expectation. Philip is looking for the coming of the Messiah, as are his friends. We have found the Messiah, Andrew says to Peter, because they are looking for him. They have an expectation that God is going to break into the history of Israel and bring a promised one who will be their deliverer. And this expectation is, in fact, Orthodox Judaism. The rabbi, Maimonides, writing in the 12th century, compiled 13 principles that he felt were core to Judaism. And the 12th one is this. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Mashiach, which is the Messiah. And though he may tarry, still I await him every day. So this man, summarizing the core beliefs of Judaism, puts in the expectation of the Messiah as part of those core beliefs. Jews debated about the coming of the Messiah. Some of them were secular, and they didn't believe in the activity of God in the present and didn't believe a Messiah would come. And some denied that there was any expectation of the Messiah in the Torah, which all of them took to be the Word of God. And so what was written in the Torah was more important even than the writings in the prophets to many of them. But you will notice here that when Philip comes to Andrew, he says, we have found the one of whom Moses wrote. He believed, in other words, that the Messiah and the expectation of the promised one was in the writing of Moses in those first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. And he believed that Moses wrote about it. When Moses said, God is going to send a prophet like unto me, and you're going to listen to him, he was speaking about that future one who would come, that promised one. Those of us who have studied the Torah, particularly the book of Genesis, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of humans. Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they sin and they fall. And the promise made to the woman is that there is one coming, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And that theme is carried out throughout the Holy Scriptures. There is an expectation, in other words, from the very beginning of the Bible that this one would come. And though some denied that it was there, and some denied that there was any Messiah to be expected, in first century Israel, among the Jews, a great expectation existed that God was going to send his deliverer. They were under the heel of Rome. They were not free anymore. They chaved under that burden under that yoke of Roman oppression. They wanted to be free as a people. There was, in fact, a group of them. We, we are told they were the zealots in the New Testament, and these zealots were willing to bring about this new era of freedom, even if it required violence. Jesus, in fact, called a man named Simon, who is described as Simon, the zealot. He's one of the twelve. 
Some people think that Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, was also in this group, a zealot who wanted to see the liberation of Israel and the overthrow of the Roman heel. The Messiah, according to a sacred prayer that Orthodox Jews prayed three times a day, would accomplish seven tasks. I want you to listen to these seven. Now, I'm talking about Orthodox Judaism and a prayer that Jews prayed in expectation of the coming of the Messiah. And they prayed this prayer with these seven tenets they believed the Messiah would accomplish. The ingathering of the exiles is number one. Restoration of the religious courts of justice. An end of wickedness, sin, and heresy. A reward to the righteous. The rebuilding of Jerusalem. The restoration of the line of King David. And the restoration of temple service. In other words, if you were a faithful Jew, three times a day, you would pray for the coming of the Messiah who would do these seven things, who would accomplish this. The restoration of the temple. The rebuilding of Jerusalem. The gathering of the exiles. This is how they understood the Messiah. Andrew felt for sure that Jesus was the Messiah. And he announced him this way. He said, we have found the Messiah. Peter hears these words. Does Peter know if they are right? At that moment, we don't know. We don't know at that moment if Andrew is right in saying Jesus is the Messiah. There is one thing we do know for sure. They have the expectation that God is going to break into human history and accomplish His purposes through His promised one. And Andrew is speaking that to Peter because they together believe this is going to happen. And Philip is saying it to Nathaniel because they too have this common expectation. And John the Baptist believes it is going to take place. They ask him, are you the Messiah? Everybody wants to know who is the Messiah. John the Baptist has thousands of people coming down to the Jordan River to be baptized. And they say to him, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I am not the Messiah. They thought he was. But he knew there was one who was to come. There are people who do not believe God is active in the world today. They don't believe God does anything. They don't pray because they don't think God hears prayers or answers prayers. They don't believe God is active. He wound up the universe like a wind-up clock and then walked off and left it. So if they believe there is a God, they believe he is an impassive creator who is no longer involved in the world, and he just set it to going. And he's not active in the world today. That's not the world of the first century. That's not the world of Judaism in the first century. It's not the world of Peter and Andrew. They believe that God is active in their world. John the Baptist, he is looking for God to break in. So I might ask you, we're starting this series, Why Jesus? I might ask you, do you believe God is active in the world? Or are you, like some of the founding fathers, a deist who believes there's a God, but he's not involved in his creation? Do you believe God is active in the world? Do you pray expecting God to hear 
and to answer. Do you? See, if you don't believe God is active in the world, then this expectation may not process with you. But for all these years, the Jews have been prepared for this coming one, not only by Moses and the comments in the Torah, but also in the prophets, as Philip mentions here. In the prophetic writings, there is the Son of Man who is going to come, and the King like David that God is going to bring. There is the suffering servant in Isaiah, though they don't exactly know where to put him in this spectrum, but there is the expectation that somebody's coming to deliver them. Do you know Christians still have the expectation of the coming one? We believe God has broken into history, into human history, by sending His Son, Jesus. We believe that. We believe God is going to break in again at the proper time to fulfill human history. In other words, we do not believe that human history will find its culmination in the activity of humans, but in the breaking in of God above who created us, who made us, who sent His Son to save us and will bring all these things to their proper conclusion when the Lamb of God comes back riding on a cloud of heaven and wrapping up His work in the world. And if you were to summarize Orthodox Christianity with 13 principles as Maimonides did with Judaism, one of those would be we expect the second coming of Jesus Christ to this planet, His visible, personal return to the earth. That expectation is in the heart of Christians who are looking on the horizon, watching for the coming of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, I want you to do that. I want you to live on tiptoe, looking at the horizon, watching for my coming. Have the expectation that I am going to come. This great expectation was part of the first century thought and part of the mental attitude and the understanding of Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel as well as John the Baptist. God is going to do something. He is going to break in to our present. There were, in fact, some false messiahs that are mentioned in the Bible, people who said they were something. They had a great counsel. John is thought to be the second disciple of these two in this passage. From ancient times, they assumed that it was Andrew and John who followed Jesus in this text. And John and Peter are preaching after the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem, and they arrest him. And they bring him before the Jewish council, which is the Sanhedrin. And the, the council really wants to kill them. They really want to kill them. They'd like to stone them to death. And there's a man named Gamaliel at the council in Acts chapter 5. And he addressed the Sanhedrin. This is what he said. He was a wise teacher in the first century. The apostle Paul sat at the feet of this man. Men of Israel, Gamaliel said, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. 
Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. 400 men. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, another Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. I can see John heaving a big sigh of relief, can't you? With Gamaliel saying, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you cannot stop it. Now here's what I want you to hear from Gamaliel, the great teacher of Paul and of his generation. Gamaliel expects the activity of God in his world. He anticipates that though there have been two revolts that were purely, purely of human origin, that someone is going to come. That it is possible there will be someone who will come who is from God and has the mantle of God and the calling of God. And if that happens, no force on earth can stop it. And so you have this expectation, this indestructible expectation planted in the heart of the children of Abraham that God is going to send his deliverer to them. Now, Nathaniel receives the invitation, come and see in this very context. Come and see, they are common verbs. We use them all the time. Brady, the six-year-old grandson, might grab my hand and say, come and see, Papa. And he's taking me to see something he's built in the backyard. Or we might say, come and see to someone when we're proud of a professional accomplishment. Or something that startles us. A beautiful flower or a marvelous display of the handiwork of God. And we say, come and see this. You've got to see this. Janet stopped me in my tracks just recently to point out a beautiful butterfly hanging on a blossom in our satsuma tree. And we all gathered around, looked at it, and she took a picture. And it was beautiful. We use these words, come and see, all the time. When they are first used in our text here, they are used by Jesus who speaks to the, the disciples and they're saying, where are you staying? And he says, come and you will see. And John, is our expectation that John and Andrew went with Jesus and they saw the place where he was staying. Come and see was purely geographical. It was about a location. It was about a little journey they were to make Take steps one in front of the other and go to this place and see where Jesus is staying. And they report that we saw. We saw where he was staying. 
when those two verbs are used again in a little bit different form in verse 46, they're used by Philip, who is responding to Nathaniel's skepticism. Can anything good come from there? That is, Nazareth. And Philip says, come and see. Now, part of what he wants Nathaniel to do is come with him. So they're going to make a little physical journey. They're going to go somewhere. They're going to go where Jesus is. And that's part of what come and see means. But this is going to be a journey of exploration and discovery. Nathaniel is going to make a trip, not only physically, but mentally and spiritually. Because Philip is inviting him to examine the claims of Jesus that Jesus has made about himself, that John the Baptist has made about Jesus. Come and see. And I would say to you, come and see. What harm in there is there to make a journey mentally, spiritually, to find out who Jesus really is? This amazing person from Nazareth. Come and see. It's an invitation to all of us. In fact, it's an invitation that we continue to have throughout our lifetime. Our walk with Jesus is in part every day coming to see. Lord, I'm here in your presence. I'm coming to pray. I want to see what you have for me. I want to know more about you. I am coming to the scripture. I want to know who you are. I want to know more about me as well. I want to know about your mission on earth. I'm coming to see. And so it is a way to live on the planet, a way to be in the world, have Jesus as Lord and to be perpetually coming to see all that he is doing. In fact, we teach our congregation to watch for the activity of God in the world and join him where you see him at work. God is always at work, Jesus said. My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And so, if God is always at work to this very day, and Jesus is also working, then somewhere around me, in my family, in my friends, in the people for whom I pray, with the folks that I work, somewhere God is at work. He's always at work. And I come to see every day where God is at work. And then I have the privilege and opportunity to join him in the work he's already started in so many places with so many lives. Come and see what God is doing in the world, in your world. Open your eyes to the activity of God around you and join him in his work. Nathaniel receives this invitation in the wake of his question can anything good come from Nazareth and it's a good question it's like I don't want to speak unkindly of any village in Louisiana you know but could anything good come from let me just pull one out all right I mean can anything good come from Gina can anything good come from applause? Can, you're out there in the hinterlands. Can anything good come from way down on the bayou? 
Nazareth is the blue-collar community. It's where carpenters live, all right? And if you go there now, you will fight the diesel buses and the fumes and all the tourists are there. And they've got the carpenter shop and all the things for you to see. And I've been there and it was a delightful place to be. I'm glad I went there. And this is where Joseph lived and where he probably had his carpenter shop and where Jesus maybe plied that trade as well. And people speculate about where they might have done the construction and could they have gone to Zippori, which is six miles to the north, and at the crossroads of great trade uh, center. And, and so maybe that's where they went and built all those things. But Nazareth is not known like Zippori was or Sepphoris. For its synagogues. And in Sepphoris there were 21 synagogues. It was known as a center of learning for the Jews. But not Nazareth. You don't go to Nazareth for your education. For your culture. For your learning. For your social life. That's not where you go. Nazareth is off the beaten trail. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Do you know there's a, there's a website that you can access that originates in Nazareth today. And it is put up there and maintained by a group of Arab Christians. And they call their website, Come and See. They say on the website that they gather the news of the Christian church from all over Israel and the Middle East and they give this information out to all those who want to read it. And they also say in the website that they join with Messianic Jews. That's a term for Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they have fellowship. These Arabs and these Jews meet together and have fellowship because they have a common Lord. They are part of His church. And that sounds Christian and Jesus to me, doesn't it to you? And so Nazareth continues to be a place where you come and see. It's interesting, after all these years, that we have the hindsight. They say hindsight is 2020. We have the hindsight to answer Nathaniel's question. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, after 2,000 years, we can tell you, Nathaniel, that there was a guy who came out of Nazareth. And his name is Jesus. And sometimes they called him the Nazarene and still do today. And sometimes they call what he started the Nazarene cult. His enemies called it that back then. And Nathaniel, this man Jesus, who came out of Nazareth, we're not teasing, we're not exaggerating. He changed the world. He changed the world. Do you know, Nathaniel, that human beings divide their history at his birth? There's before Christ and there's after Christ. He so profoundly changed the world. And Nathaniel, he was good. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil because the Lord was with him. And what he's done in my life is good. So, Nathaniel, I can answer your question. 
Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Absolutely. Jesus of Nazareth came from there. Now, the curious thing is that Jesus wasn't like Thutis or Judas of Galilee mentioned by Gamaliel. He didn't take up the sword. He didn't gather himself an army. He didn't attack the Romans. He wasn't a military ruler. He wasn't like Buddha. He isn't known for his amazing philosophy. He's not like Moses, really. He wasn't a lawgiver. If you had to characterize Jesus, this good man who came out of Nazareth, you might want to use the phrase that John the Baptist used to introduce him. He's the Lamb of God. You've seen a lamb lately? You know what a lamb looks like? Familiar with lambs? Little white creatures about this tall, they run around the pasture, jump on the machinery. They have little spindly legs. When they get about four months old, you sell them and they take them to the slaughterhouse. That's what you do with them. That's why they raise them. And when you hear John say, Behold the Lamb of God, there's one thing that comes to your mind that you know for sure. And it's the idea of sacrifice. There's something about Jesus that's a sacrifice. You wouldn't characterize any other great religious leader this way, but with Jesus you would. You would say he's a lamb, that spindly-legged little white creature dancing around the pasture that one day is going to the slaughterhouse. That's, that's who Jesus is. He's the lamb. He's the sacrifice. And he takes away the sin of the world. And that, my friends, is the most unique characterization possible of a religious leader. Only with Jesus would you say he's the lamb. And think about it. This lamb, this innocent, weak, bleating little creature becomes the center of human history. Why? Why Jesus? The only answer I know is he is the promised one sent from God to save us from our sin. Bow with me, please. And as we bow, I invite you to respond to Jesus just like Nathaniel did to the invitation he received. If you have never trusted Christ, this moment you could pray and he would hear your prayer. And you could say, Lord, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. And today I open my heart to you. The scripture says of Jesus, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody in this room hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Wouldn't you like to do that? To know the one who not only changed the world, but can change you and your world. Lord, I pray today that we would hear your invitation and respond. In Jesus' name, amen.